Just a quick note before we begin, if you could like and subscribe on your listening platform of choice, that would be super helpful. Thanks. Let's jump in. Larry would walk into my office and say, hey, uh, I need you to file this trademark application for a new restaurant we're opening. I'd be like, I got this. And he'd leave the office and I'd be, oh my God. I picked up the phone and I called the patent trademark office in Washington, D.C. I got this really nice woman on the phone and I said, look, you don't know me. But if you don't help me, I'm going to lose my job. Hey, you guys. Thanks for taking your lunch break with us. I'm Jade. And I'm Alex. And we are the CEO Lunch Break. On today's episode, we sit down with Andy Lansing, CEO of Levy Restaurants. Levy Restaurants is a restaurant and hospitality company based in Chicago that specializes in providing food and beverages to major entertainment and sports venues around the country. From the bleachers to the club level, you see, or shall I say taste, a touch of Levy. I mean, you guys, they are everywhere. From Nissan Stadium to Coachella to the Grammys to the Kentucky Derby, the Dodgers Stadium. You know, Alex, I think we could literally have a podcast just listing all their locations that they're in. 100%. This is one of my favorite conversations we've had so far, Jade. This was so fun. We kick off the episode eating hot dogs together with Andy. I'm still craving that hot dog today. I've been craving that hot dog since we recorded the episode. I think the part that I really enjoy is how honest he was about kind of that imposter syndrome that he faced in the beginning when he joined as general counsel and he was making deals with, I don't know, Disney at 27. I think it was just cool. So many times we hear of these CEOs and we kind of think they're, you know, unrelatable. And then Andy brings them all back down to earth, which is just awesome. I couldn't agree more. So let's hop into our conversation now. Thanks for being here. It's lunchtime. Andy, welcome to the CEO lunch break. Thank you. Happy to be with you guys. Thanks for taking a lunch break with us. We really appreciate it. And we literally mean your lunch break. We do. What are we What are we eating right now, Andy? Set the scene. We are eating uh, my favorite food item in the world. Most people would go real fancy items. They'd mm-hmm. say lobster. They'd say, you know, a ribeye steak. Uh, this is a classic Chicago hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> and when I say classic Chicago, there's a very specific style to a Chicago dog. And as you can see, because we are all in the middle of bites, <laughs> a Chicago hot dog is a steamed dog on a poppy seed bun with very specific ingredients. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing them in front of you. It is a pickle spear, not wedges, mm-hmm. not discs, a spear, mm-hmm. a tomato wedge, not diced, a wedge, chopped onions. Neon green sweet relish, a color that doesn't exist in nature, (laughs) sport peppers, and the topper is a little bit of celery salt. So that is a proper Chicago dog. Mm. The nickname is called Dragging It Through the Garden. If you want all the ingredients on it and you are in a hot dog stand in Chicago, you will say, I'll have a Chicago dog drag it through the garden, and that's what you're going to end up with. Do you remember the first hot dog you ever ate? And was it a life-changing experience, or was it a gradual... I think it was a gradual. I have an unhealthy relationship with hot dogs in the sense that I eat way too many, way too many. Uh, whenever I go to one of our locations, I'm eating a hot dog. And I think there was an article, wasn't there, like a couple years ago that said every hot dog you eat takes a minute off your life, I think. I am in such deep Good. trouble. How many minutes so are we at? I am in deep, <laughs> deep, deep trouble. Hope we finish the podcast. Yeah, let's get it going before it <laughs> Let me ask you this. Could you compare your leadership style as a CEO to a hot dog? Like maybe the bun is, or maybe the relish is like your HR team. You're the meat in the middle. Is there any metaphors that you could draw there? Absolutely none. <laughs> <laughs> it was worth a shot. It, was worth, it would have been a good one, and I wish I could have come up with a creative answer, but uh, no. Maybe other than the fact, I think there's a proper way to um, to eat a Chicago dog, and I think there's a proper way to lead so maybe that's as close as i can get i like that i like that you leave people happy and both hot dogs leave people happy you leave people well thank you thank you there we go you know we'd love to start from the beginning you know tell us a little bit when you were younger what did you want to be when you grew up 
Yeah, when I was really young, I wanted to be a professional athlete like most kids. Mm-hmm. Um, what sport? Uh, baseball. I loved baseball. I played baseball. I wanted to be a professional baseball player, which was obviously not in the cards and was never in the cards. <laughs> um, and then really from that time on, which is probably, I don't know, sixth grade when I realized I wasn't going to play pro ball, I wanted to be a lawyer. That, mm-hmm. that was my, uh, my dream. And so ultimately, I actually did become a lawyer before I got into this crazy business. Cool. You a White Sox or Cubs fan? I love them both, which mm-hmm. you're not supposed to do. You're actually supposed to hate the other one. Interesting. Uh, if they're playing each other, I'm probably a little more of a Sox fan. Okay. Uh, only because the Cubs broke my heart when I was a kid. They In, in 1969, they sort of lost when they had a big lead and so i said well I, they can't do that to me i'm they hurt me so i switched mm-hmm. to the socks okay. but i like them both cool and how were you in school did you like school did you like studying did you like your classes what did you do outside of school what were your hobbies what were you into uh well i actually did like school yep. i i i have great memories of school from literally nursery school that for some reason i remember really well all the way through college i i I never viewed school as a chore i mean i didn't love doing homework but i kind of liked learning and i would say i was characterized by a couple things i was definitely the class clown (laughs) but sort of a likable class clown in the sense that the teachers would be cracking up at something I said they'd be like I got it you got to go out in the hall for 15 minutes like I there's I have no choice but they would be laughing as I as I went out so I think I was uh not a pain in the ass class clown but actually kind of entertaining uh and I was I was a bit rare in that I played sports and I was in theater and usually Mm. as you guys know in high school you sort of pick one or the other and I liked doing both so um, that's that's what I did in high school. Were there any plays that you remember that you enjoyed being a part of? I did a lot of variety shows. I would I would. There was sort of a, uh, the early days of SNL. So we would do these annual um, shows where they would dress me in stupid, you know, wigs <laughs> and costumes because I still to this day have no issue making an idiot out of myself and I would we would have shows like that or I would MC different shows or I would MC the school telethon at the time so I just uh, it was less about serious drama and a little bit more about comedy okay so you you like making jokes you like making people laugh you're in theater you do sports why what was the desire to become a lawyer because it seems like you had like a bunch of interests yeah why, I, why I don't law? I don't know I just um, my grandfather was a lawyer, so mm-hmm. maybe I was taken a little bit by going to his office or, or seeing a court. I had an uncle who was a judge, and he would take me to court sometimes and have me sit in the gallery and watch him, and I thought that was kind of cool. Wow, that's fun. So, I love to do that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I kind of didn't know any better. I'm like, I'm going to be a lawyer. Yeah, and what were you motivated like motivated by early in life? Was it just you have this kind of sense of, sense of achievement why is that? Is that how you were raised by your family? Was it were you born that way, just innately? Were you following your passion? I really don't. I I I believed at a young age in following a passion. I don't think that I was insanely goal oriented, or I have to get to this to get to this to get to this. Um, you know, my favorite saying in life that I that I say all the time, and it is so true. And I and I remember thinking about this in high school is. I think it was a John Lennon line from a song, mm-hmm. life is what happens when you're busy making plans. Yeah. Like the last thing I thought I would be doing is what I'm doing now. Um, some of the things I did do. So I was never, I've got to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this. I sort of saw what was in front of me and said, okay, let's give this a try. Cool. So when you kind of left high school, you jumped right into law school, correct? Uh, from high school to college. College and then college to And law then school. college to law school. I know today... It's pretty uh, common for people to take time off mm-hmm. between like college mm-hmm. and law school or business school, and I just went right through. Okay. In the time, that's what we did. Okay, nice. And did you do a backpacking trip in between college and law school? One thousand percent. And how was that? It was great. I went with two friends. Yeah. Uh, we did it the classic way, you know, with the Eurail pass. We stayed in uh-huh. youth hostels, and I remember 
over eight weeks, we covered 19 countries. Oh so it was God. like, it was really an amazing experience. What was your favorite place? Wow. I loved it all, but I'll tell you an interesting story. Yeah. Um, I particularly appreciated some of the art, which is unusual, and, and there's a reason for that. Before my senior year in college, I, I went and I said to my mom, hey, these guys and I want to go to Europe after I graduate for eight weeks. I'll pay for everything, but can you help me with the plane ticket? Okay. I can't afford the plane ticket, too. And she said immediately, I will on one condition. I said, what? She said, that senior year at Michigan, you take art history. Mm. And I said, no, no, mom, no, no, I hate that. No, why are you doing that to me? She says, I'm not going to pay for you to go to Europe and you go to museums or and not know what you're looking at. So that's a deal. Either you take <laughs> art history or you buy your own plane ticket. And I really had no choice. So I took art history my senior year at Michigan, which I absolutely fell in love with it was cool. like my favorite class over four years and to her credit when i went to europe i loved going to the museums and i knew all mm -hmm. that was going on so she was really really smart in that regard so that was sort of a highlight for me cool cool if you could pick one artist from those art history you know places and things you saw in europe to paint a photo of a hot dog who would you choose wow <laughs> you know probably my famous artist was the um the impressionist claude monet mm. uh and i that would be really cool to have seen him paint a chicago hot dog right wow you know it's typically water lilies or these beautiful outdoor scenes right uh i don't think people were painting hot dogs in the day but how cool would that have been i know <laughs> yeah well when were, when were hot dogs invented early 1900s uh, I'm not going to venture a guess on that one. I know they were big, big, big during the Depression. Actually, the, oh, the story of the Chicago dog is these started with um, in in Chicago off street vendors and people huh. who only had a dime or a quarter for a meal. It was almost as you can see, like a salad. It was a whole meal because it was like a salad on a hot dog, and that's how these came to be. So, yeah, <laughs> sausages and hot dogs are okay. way, way back. Okay, I don't know when, but so you come back. Now you go to Loyola Law School. Yeah. Did you know what kind of law you wanted to, to go into? Or were you kind of still exploring and seeing your options and seeing where your interest took you or see what opportunities opened uh, up? I knew that I liked business. Mm -hmm. And so I was studying to be a real estate and a corporate lawyer particularly. Okay. What my secret goal was that was an impossibility, or at least I thought was, I really wanted to be a sports agent. I wanted to yeah. represent professional athletes. Yeah. Like, I thought that would be really cool. Maybe you take one class in law school, entertainment law or something, that's sort of a little tangentially related to it. Um, but that was my that was my real goal. Mm -hmm. And you ended up doing that, didn't you? Crazy story. Let's hear it. Crazy story. So when I graduated law school, I was... Um, I worked for a, a boutique commercial real estate and corporate law firm, and I was doing all of the work that I studied to do. But I still wanted to be the sports lawyer. So one day, the head partner of our law firm came up to me. I was the most junior associate. I'd only been there for a couple of months. And he said, hey, there's a handyman that does some work for us, and he's buying a house uh, on the south side of Chicago. Would you mind doing the house closing for him? And I said, of course. I mean, more than happy to. So I, I met this gentleman who was just the nicest man. And I closed his house deal. And somehow I, I caught something where he was about to be screwed and I saved him some money. Uh -huh. Well, he thought that that was the greatest thing in the world and that I was the greatest guy in the world. Mm -hmm. So he said, how can I thank you? And I said, don't. I mean, that was my pleasure. I just got to know you, which was a real treat for me. He said, do you like football? I said, I love football. And he said, well, my, my cousin's a, a, a starting receiver for the Miami Dolphins. Uh, his name was Mark Clayton. Some may remember him. He was one of the Marx brothers mm -hmm. who Dan Marino threw to so successfully. And I said, oh, my God, I know Mark. You know, I know of Mark. He's one mm -hmm. of the best in the game. And he said, you want to go down and go to one of his games? So I said, sure. We picked the one game. It was December 2nd. Uh, 1985 was the only game the Bears lost in their Super Bowl Ooh. season. It was a Monday night game. So I go home and I said to my wife, hey, I'm going to Miami uh, to this football game with Richard. And she said, what? 
And I said, I know, it's just one of those things. I don't believe it. <laughs> but well, so I show up at the airport and we're on the plane. And I said to Richard, um, where are we staying? And he said, we're staying at Mark's house. I'm like, okay, you know, I think I'm being punked or right. something at the right. time. And so we land and I said, how are we getting to Mark's house? And he said, Mark's picking us up. So <laughs> I'm playing along with this. And before I know it, there's Mark Clayton picking us up at the airport, head to his house. And this was maybe Friday. And we spent the weekend with him. We went to practice. We did everything together. And he and I just sort of hit it off. And oh. he said to me, I'd, I'd never said a word to him. He said, hey, would you do some work for me? I'm 27 years old. Right. I'm like, wow. yeah, for sure. So uh, he hired me to do a bunch of financial planning and some contract negotiations. Of course, I, I was smart enough to know I needed to get some help, so I brought in other um, experts. But we sort of did some really cool things together. And then the one thing about getting athletes is if you get one and you do a good job, you're getting more. So he told right. his friends, and before mm-hmm. I knew it, I was representing a, a whole bunch of guys in the NFL, which was really, really cool at that age. Did you meet Marino? I did meet I went to Wendy's for lunch with he and Mark, which was one of the highlight meals of my life. I know. What happened? What did you get? What did he get? get I don't remember. I mean, in the day, I probably had a triple burger. Like, that's what my thing was and chase it down with a Frosty. And they didn't eat healthy. Uh, So if that's what you're like, they were not having salads. But the three of us were at lunch at Wendy's. and, And I'm like. This is just surreal. I would have been freaking out. Yeah, I was. I would have been freaking out. <laughs> I was I, trying to act cool, but it wasn't yeah, working. Yeah. I would have been just like shaking mm-hmm. and like, because I always thought it'd be really fun to be a sports agent. Yeah, it's really cool. Did you enjoy it? Like, was it the best job ever? Was it everything you thought it would be? I loved it. You know, I was jetting off to the Pro Bowl in Hawaii with these guys and going to games. Uh, you know, the downside of it is that you're on 24 seven and you really are in many respects for certain clients, a high price babysitter. I mean, I would get, I'd be in a business meeting and my assistant would come in and say, Hey, it's so-and-so on the phone. They need to talk to you. And I say, tell them I'll call them. No, it's an emergency. You got to get on the phone. Like, Oh my God. So I'd jump out and I'd say, Hey Ron, what's going on? Like, are you okay? And he's like, no, man, I'm at the Porsche dealership. I just want to know if it's okay if I buy this Porsche. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> or I get a call at two in the morning from one of these guys, wake me out of a deep sleep. Uh, my burglar alarm's going off. What, what do I do? I mean, these are people in Florida. So I- well, You're like a glorified babysitter. It really is the case. It's, it's exhilarating. It's crazy cool. That's the one dark side of okay. it a little bit. Was it hard to balance? Because it sounds like you also were still working as a practicing lawyer while doing the agent thing as well. Was that hard to balance that? Uh, no, because, you know, we it was really no different than any other young associate at a law firm. You have a plate of work and you mm. get it all done. And my plate of work was maybe, unlike the guy sitting next to me who was 100% corporate and real estate, mine was maybe 50% corporate real estate, 50% sports law related. So, okay, yeah. What was the toughest GM you negotiated with or who? Wow. Uh, I had a negotiation with the Miami Dolphins uh, for one of the guys that Uh was kind of crazy because they, it was the day or their style of leadership where they were insulting the player who was sitting next to me in the negotiation. And that's not a great strategy for a lot of reasons. The player for the rest of his career, even though we got a good new deal, was not thrilled with the team and sort of... um, that's scarred so weird. that was a particularly crazy eye-opening experience for me I was a young guy and and I think the it was actually the team owner in the negotiation at the time and I think he thought maybe he could bully us a little bit and at one time I looked at my clients said, come on we're out of here and yeah I, I don't think they expected that so somehow um we survived it and he got a good deal but it was kind of nasty okay and there was no you didn't want to maybe venture into GM world and be general manager you just love the agent player side i really loved that at the time and actually when i came to levy and had to give that up um it was hard for me because you have these relationships and i was doing what i had always wanted to do which was become a sports lawyer and uh and so that was uh, it was a great period that i just really loved and learned a lot from and um just sort of gives you different kinds of skills and they teach you in law school. I'm going to go grab a snack. We'll be right back. 
couple lunches you had that really changed the trajectory of your path and it's why we're sitting here today. Walk us through those lunches and how they came to be and what happened. Well, I assume uh, one of the lunches you're talking about or two are, uh, are when I was being asked to potentially join Levy as general counsel. I was, I was back in the day, again, 27 years old. I was having a nice young partner uh, associate practice at, on the partnership track. Like I just assumed that in eight years, whatever, I'd be a partner, and that's what things looked like then. And a friend of mine was head of marketing for Levy at the time, and she called me, and she said, hey, our general counsel's leaving. Do you know anyone who might be interested? And I said, not really. I don't know what kind of lawyer you need. Do you need a labor lawyer, a contract lawyer, like a, a corporate lawyer? And she says, I'm not sure. Will you come and have lunch with Larry Levy? And he'll explain it to you. And, you know, I'd read about Larry. I knew about Larry. And so I said, yeah, of course. So we went out for lunch, and Larry was explaining to me the job, and I was taking very copious notes. And at the end, I said, I, I got it. Let me... Um, give me a week and I'll, I'll send you like five names. I know what, I know what kind of lawyer I think you need. So at the end he said, would you be interested? And I said, no, 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 no. I love what I'm doing. I've got the sports practice and, and the law practice and I'm, I'm loving it. That's so nice of you. And he said, you really should consider it. And I said, no, that's so nice. So I, I went home, I put my list together. I sent him the names and, uh, about a month later, this friend of mine, who had called me originally, called me again, and she said, you know, you're an idiot. And I said, well, I know I hear that from time to time. Why are you saying it in this case? And she said, how old are you? And I said, 27. And she goes, you understand that they're marching like 30, 40, 50-year-old men and women through this office, all of who want the job, and Larry really wants to hire you. Why aren't you listening? And I said, wow, I, 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 I'm happy. I'm not looking to move. And she said, we have lunch with him one more time. So I said, yes, but I just want to be clear. This isn't like a negotiation. I'm not playing hard to get or right. I just don't. Mm -hmm. So I went and I met Larry uh, for another lunch. And he said, he put the hard sell on. Not financially, not anything, but other than you understand this is a massive opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think it's cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, he said, you know, the difference between successful people and really successful people, that really successful people spot an opportunity when it comes and they grab it because it's not coming again. And mm -hmm. this is that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So you should think about it. And just to get him off of me, I said, you know what, Larry, it, it, today's Friday. Give me till Monday. Let me think about it over the weekend and I'll call you on Monday. Never thinking that I was going to do this. And I, I remember this clear as day. I walked out of the restaurant we were in, and there was a revolving door. And I get into the first turn in the door. We're still sort of inside. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, or a voice said to me, you know, you should do this. And by the time I got out of the next turn on the street, I'm like, no, you're not. What's wrong with you? So I went home, and I spoke uh, with Ellen, my wife, and I s talked to her about it. And she said everything that a supportive a significant other would say none of which is helpful. Follow your gut. <laughs> you know, if it doesn't work, you can always come back. Like, you know, just trust your heart and everything. I'm like, okay. <laughs> anyway, for some reason that I can't really understand to this day, I woke up on Monday and I decided th that I was going to take the job. And so I wow. became, at that age, vice president and general counsel for Levy. At the time, maybe we were $30 million-ish in revenue and it was a job I had no business doing, but I just decided to take a flyer. Can I ask you, so you were 27, and you know she's saying that there's 50-year-olds, 40-year-olds marching around the office. What do you think Larry saw in you that he didn't see in those 40 and 50-year-olds that he was like, I want him? And is there something that you, when you go to hire, you see in people that you're like, you know, I'd, I'd rather hire this 20-year-old or this 50-year-old? What do you think yeah, that it's was? a great question, and I think I didn't realize it at the time, uh, but I learned it, and I do use it, which is Larry believed throughout his career that if you take someone who on paper probably shouldn't have that job, but you see a fire, a passion mm -hmm. in them, that they will be so successful because every day they'll fight to prove that you made the right decision. 
that you took a risk, and he did that with me. I had no business. But for my entire career, continuing today, I feel I need to justify that decision. So Mm -hmm. I have done that many times throughout my career that I have taken somebody either from outside the company or inside the company that probably aren't quite ready for what uh, I want to put them in. But if I see that characteristic of the fire in the belly, I put them in there and it, and the same thing happens. They just soar um, because they want to prove that, they, that they're up to it. How do you know in your life when you're faced with a new opportunity whether you should jump to that next vine or stay on your current vine. It's like the revolving door story. It's, is that coincidence? Is that a sign from above? How do you kind of negotiate signs with opportunities and taking that jump? I don't know, and I assume it's different for everybody. With me, I have always, from a young age, trusted my gut. Yeah. I just think there's something that you feel inside your gut that tells mm-hmm. you what to do. I don't know what causes that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I usually see things pretty clearly. Things to me, for better or worse, this isn't necessarily a superpower, it's just the way I'm wired. Mm-hmm. If I see a situation, I know what to do. When I'm on the fence about something or I'm a little unsure, I just my, my gut will tell me what to do. And mm-hmm. I think that's the, that's the best sort of litmus test of... Mm-hmm. How are you feeling deep inside? Not what's your mind telling you. What's yeah. your sort of heart and your yeah. soul telling you? Tell us about that first year there. What did you feel? Did you feel like you were, you know, I'm capable, I can do this. Larry Levy has, is wanting me here. Or is there imposter syndrome? Absolutely the worst imposter syndrome <laughs> that you could ever envision. I came in on my first day and I was like, oh my God, somebody is going to discover that I have no business doing what I'm doing. And, you know, as general counsel, which was my vice president general counsel, I had a huge title at that age, you know, that was not deserved. um, You're expected to do everything general counsel. And we we were small then, so I couldn't hire expert law firms. Mm -hmm. I had to literally do Mm -hmm. everything. So, you know, within the first week, Larry would walk into my office and say, hey, uh, I need you to file this trademark application for a new restaurant we're opening. I'd be like, I got this. And he'd leave the office and I'd be, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I don't know. I didn't take intellectual property in law school. I've never done this before. And this may surprise you, but it was before the days of the Internet. So I would I ran to the law library that night. I took out books. None of it helped. And then, like, the next day... I picked up the phone and I called the patent trademark office in Washington, D.C. I got this really nice woman on the phone and I said, look, you don't know me, but if you don't help me, I'm going to lose my job. Can you just tell me what I need to do? And she said, we could, I got this. I'm going to put an application in the mail. When you get it, you pick up the phone, you call me and we'll fill it out together. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And <laughs> we got a trademark for this restaurant and like, OK, I, now I know how to do it. But then, like, a couple weeks later, Larry would walk in and he'd say, hey, here's, uh, can you take care of this EEOC complaint we had? And I'm like, I got it. And he (laughs) left the office and my knees buckled. I was like, I don't know what EEOC stands for. I didn't take labor law in school. What does that stand for? Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Okay. Mm. And so I, I didn't know what to do. And I went down to the state of Illinois building to the EEOC office. And I waited in line, and I got to the front, and there was a nice guy in the front. And I said, this is going to sound so strange, and I promise, like, I'm not a weird dude. If you help me with this, like, I'll take you out for a burger and beer after work. (laughs) I I don't know how else to thank you, but, like, maybe you could walk me through this. And he's like, you seem like a decent guy. Let me help you. So I figured it out, and we went out for a burger and a beer. So this is sort of what was going on for the first year or so, but let me tell you my highlight of not knowing what I was doing is we had a, a trial that came up, a small trial, but it was a trial nonetheless, and we couldn't afford to hire a lawyer to represent us, so oh I had to oh litigate this case. Now, I was not a litigator. I took moot court in law school, as everybody uh-huh. does, um, but I had a secret weapon. My wife was practicing at the time class action securities litigation. Uh So I brought her 
to the case, to the trial. She was sitting in the gallery. I had all my notes, you know, f- that I learned in law school. May it please the court, Your Honor, I'm Andy <laughs> Lansing, appearing on behalf of. But our deal was when I was supposed to object, she would cough. No. <laughs> you- yeah. So she would cough, and I would say, objection, Your Honor. Having no idea why I was saying objection, Your Honor, and one of a couple things happened. Either he would say sustained, which was great, or he would say overruled, which was fine. The challenge was when he said, uh, and what's the basis for your objection? You would come up with something. <laughs> and I would be like, withdrawn. <laughs> so anyway, this, this played itself out for a long time. And then I sort of woke up after, I don't know, a year, two years. I'm like, okay, I get this. I've done most of these things, and I can, I can sort of do this now. Sounds like you have an amazing person next to you, Ellen. What a oh champion. Oh, my gosh. What an absolute oh, champion. I don't know what I would do without Ellen. What, what kind of skill set did you get from maybe theater or playing sports growing up or from being a sports agent that let you kind of fake it till you make it? Because that's a skill to get up there and kind of just like make it all happen. Was that just a natural gift? I don't, I don't I'm not sure. I think it's. I'm never, I was never afraid to try something. Yeah. I was never, it wasn't arrogance. It was sort of just confidence. Like, I can figure this out. I can figure it out. I've, I've got the tools to figure it out, uh-huh. I think. And so I would just never, ever say, oh, I can't do that, or I don't know how to do that. I would, I would just try to be resourceful. And I don't know if that's, certainly being in theater or loving speech class that I loved Mm -hmm. in in junior high and high school. I think it gives you confidence to be able to present. And I think sometimes the way you communicate with people gives them a false sense of confidence in you that you know what you're talking about where maybe you don't. So I think all that sort of came into play. Okay, so you figure things out a year or two in. Walk us through the next few years as you kind of take your path from general counsel to COO, to CEO. What was that like? What kind of impact were you looking to have on Levy? This was, again, um, nothing that was planned by me. Mm-hmm. This wasn't, okay, I'm going to come in and be general okay. counsel, then right. I'm going to move on to this and that. It just wasn't. Mm-hmm. What it reflected was that I had this ongoing sort of curiosity about our business. And it was a time when we were smaller and we weren't, you know, we didn't have silos of what people worked in. So, just because it was my nature, I would from time to time say to Larry, hey, like, why do we do it that way in purchasing? You know, we're, we're buying six different olive oils. Don't you think if we consolidated all the restaurants and bought one, we'd get better pricing? And mm-hmm. he would say to me, that's a good idea. Go set up a purchasing department. So I would go hire a purchasing expert and set it up. Or, or I'd say to him, God, in HR, I think we should maybe be doing X, Y, and Z. And he'd say, go fix it. So over time... I sort of was dabbling on the support service side of the business while I was doing my law work, so sort of moonlighting on that side. And one day Larry came to me and he said, look, you're a good lawyer. I love what you're doing, but I really like what you're doing on this side. I can hire another lawyer. Do you want to move on to the business side? And it was sort of a moment of truth for me because, again, it wasn't what I was seeking out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... I felt like it was a choice, and did I want to give up law? My God, I worked so hard to do this. And I just, again, I just felt like move on to the business side. I think you're going you're gonna to be really happy. You're going to learn a lot. And so I became executive vice president for the company, and I oversaw all the support services that provided support to the operation. So it could be finance and purchasing and marketing and legal mm-hmm. and other things. And I did that for a while and really liked it because I was learning sort of the business side of the business. And then over time, uh, a few years later, Larry said, hey, I like what you're doing on this side. How about if I make you chief operating officer, too, and you can learn and oversee the operations side, too? So then I started to uh, to get involved on that side and over time then became the CEO. So just learning on the job along the way. Now being, you know, having gone through all those roles, do you think there's a class in college that's possible to create that would have helped you along the way? Like, do you think they're they're missing a class in college? It's like, this would really help people, you know, enter into the more corporate side of things and, you know, all these different roles. Yeah, you know, I think about that often, and I'm actually involved uh, 
to this day at the University of Michigan on a couple of boards because I'm fascinated by this concept of what really prepares. Like, I believe, contrary to a lot of people today, in hindsight, I still believe a liberal arts education is is so valuable, and there are people who disagree because they know it's professional school. You should be going to college for a job. Mm-hmm. And I feel that you should be going to college to learn skills that help you throughout. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was a political science major. Why? I'm not sure. I, it was because I was, I wanted to, I was pre-law and everybody said you should be a poli-sci major. And I didn't understand it to that day. And I don't understand it to this day, what it had <laughs> to do with law. It, like I liked it, but it, nothing. Uh-huh. But as I look back now on some of the programs that are available now, some of which were and weren't available at the time, you know, a program like Mich- Michigan has an amazing, uh, I'm on the board here, an amazing organizational studies program that just mm-hmm. teaches you so many things about the workings of organizations and it could be anything from for-profit to not-for-profit but just how people um, create organizations thrive in organizations so that I think had I known what I know now for sure there really weren't entrepreneurial classes back then maybe if you went to business school there was one like you know there are today so if I had to do it all over again, I might have majored in something different than poli-sci. Not sure what, maybe a business undergrad mm-hmm. degree, mm-hmm. but I didn't think that's what I was going to do. For sure, if I uh, knew then what I know now, I would have got a, a joint JD-MBA program mm-hmm. for like an additional year. I thought that would have been great because I got an on-the-job MBA mm-hmm. and that might have been neat. So. I don't know if there's one course. People are so tied to doing what they think is right and what they're being told is right because they want a very specific career trajectory. And I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to that. So as you transition more to the business side in your role at Levy, what strategic moves were you looking to make to kind of grow the company? Were there any big initiatives you were kind of, as you go over there, you looked at it and said, we need to do this more? What were you kind of leading the charge on? The well, the first several several years, what I really had to do was learn the operations because I yeah. didn't know it. I mean, I really didn't know. You know, the crazy thing about the restaurant business, as you guys know, is everybody thinks they're an expert because they eat, right? Mm-hmm. They think that they know and they mm-hmm. know what they like and don't like. Um, but obviously, there's such a business side to it. So I spent the majority of my time in our operations trying to learn what it's like to open a restaurant to run a restaurant and not having grown up in it i was working with people and in many cases supervising people who were restaurant operators Mm. so i had to sort of get that credibility to roll up my sleeves and work in a kitchen or work you know on the floor of a restaurant to learn it um which is to me the only way. And what that did is it gave me the ability to ask the question that I always asked then and that I ask now, which is tell me why we do it that way. Mm-hmm. And in the day, I would say right down the middle, 50% of the time there would be a fabulous reason that I just didn't know. And 50% of the time it would be, it's the way we've always mm-hmm. done it. And that 50% was what I just jumped on. Well, why? Explain to me, is there a better way to do it? So there wasn't, at the time, a real big strategy. I sort of wanted, everything to me in life is a sports analogy. Yeah. So to use an analogy, I wanted to make sure that as a company we had a really good running game, a ground okay. game. Nice. Then when we got that together, we could start working on the air attack and the trick plays and things like that. So that was first. Okay. And would you say partnering with Disney and starting to get into more of the sports and entertainment venues, was that part of the running game or part of the, the air attack? I think it was clearly part of the running game because okay. the reason that Disney hired us, uh, you know, Disney had uh, had back in the late 80s, they, they went on a national search. They never had an outside restaurant company own and operate restaurants on Disney property. They did it themselves. And at the time, food was Disney's Achilles heel. They just, they did everything so well, but they just didn't really? have... And so in the, in the time, Michael Eisner decided almost in a move to shake up his own people, we're going to go out and we're going to do a national search and we're going to find a restaurant company to come open up a couple restaurants on Disney property that our guys can learn from 
and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. So they searched the whole country and they picked us. So to answer your question, the reason we got picked is because we had a good ground game. We knew yeah. how to run restaurants. Yeah. We knew how to run restaurants. When Disney picked us, that was sort of a watershed moment for our company because it was like the good housekeeping seal of approval. Like if we're good enough for Disney, we're good enough for anybody. So that was a really important moment for us. But we had to have a solid ground game to be selected. To be selected by Disney, was there a negotiation that happened? What is it like to make a business deal with Disney? It was it was really nuts. It was, I mean, we were so excited when we got the nod from them. It was just, it just put us on a national stage really overnight. Um, and I was responsible for negotiating the deal with oh Disney. Oh my gosh. And, oh my and yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I'm this young hotshot lawyer who thinks that I'm an expert. And basically the negotiation with Disney, no matter what we asked in the lease was no. Nope, nope, <laughs> nope. And sometimes I would just say, why? Like, it doesn't make sense. And the answer was always the same, because we're Disney. <gasps> wow. We're Disney. Dang. And it was, power. it wasn't obnoxious arrogance. Mm-hmm. It was just, you want to do business with us? Like, sign the dotted line. And uh, and so, of course, we did. And <laughs> opened more restaurants there over time, and it was great. But uh, it was a schooling in how you don't mess with the mouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So when you when you close that deal, in my head, I'm imagining like you guys are out maybe eating hot dogs at a really nice restaurant or something, and they push, like like in the movies, they push like a document and give you a pen, and they say right there, is that or what is, it's like, or is or it? Was it a magic wand? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I I can remember where I was when we signed the lease. It was two o'clock in Disney's offices in Orlando with a lightning storm outside. It's one of those moments that I remember exactly where I was and it was so proud um, uh, of, of that time. It was just an amazing, amazing time for our company that led to a lot of great things. How old were you at that point? I was right when I joined Levy, so just 28 maybe. 26. Yeah, that's wild. That's no, God. crazy. <laughs> Faking it along the way. Alex I love just it. turned 28. Just turned 28. There you go. All right, so you know. He's just attending and going to Disney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this was this was not Iger. This was Eisner. This was Michael Eisner and Frank Wells at the time. Okay. Were, were running Disney, and um, you know they were really the guys who deserved all the credit, and much has been written and yeah. about the fact that they took Disney, which at the time was sort of a sleepy company and turned it into the powerhouse that it became. Okay. That's really cool that you were, I mean, were you meeting with them? or, or uh, the One phone call with Frank Wells did not at that time meet Eisner. I met okay. him afterwards uh, in, in a really funny way that we can talk about later, a party that I was at at the opening <laughs> that was nuts. Um, but yeah, it was mostly their lawyers and their business people. Okay. So you close with Disney. Yeah. You also are now also segueing into entertainment venues, sports stadiums, arenas. What was the plan there? What was what was the strategy behind that? And was it was it as nerve wracking a negotiation with those venues or anything as it was with Disney? No, because here's the real story about getting into sports and entertainment: is it was totally by accident. Really? Yeah, there was wow. no strategy. Really? I think if you look back at Levy, I would say that one of the common denominators is sometimes we have a good combination of luck, then followed by some strategy, mm-hmm. but. This was luck. The White Sox were building the first skyboxes in Chicago at the old Comiskey Park. And they had this idea that if they could get a restaurant company to cater the food in the skyboxes, they could sell them more easily. They didn't want the hot dog and beer guys downstairs trying to do the white tablecloth restaurant. So they came to us. We were a Chicago restaurant company. And they said, hey, would you guys be interested in catering our skyboxes? And we said, no. Like, we're... We're not caterers, we're restaurateurs. And they asked us literally like five times. And on the fifth time, we said yes for all the wrong reasons. We thought we'd get good seats at the game. We <laughs> like baseball. We thought, And so um, we got in there, and it didn't take long for us. But we were doing it the hard way. There, were, there wasn't really even a kitchen to mm-hmm. speak of at the old Comiskey Park. We would pick up certain food. We'd send trucks around and pick up the ribs from our re- one restaurant and the chicken from another restaurant, and we would do it a very painful way but what we quickly realized when we got into stadiums and arenas was something that sort of hit us like a bolt of lightning you know the restaurant business is like the most 
difficult business I believe in the world. I could give you guys 99 perfect meals in a row at one of our restaurants, which is virtually impossible to do. There's so many moving parts. But if I do that and I blow the hundredth, you're done with me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You're done. And you can tell all your friends we suck. You're never coming back. So people in, our, in the restaurants come in with expectations way up here and you try like hell every day to hit them or exceed them. What we realized when we got into stadiums and arenas is, oh, my God, people come in here with the lowest expectations. Like, all they want is a warm hot dog and a cold beer. Like, we were giving people crab cakes and tenderloin, and they were blown away because the expectations in sporting facilities were so low. So we're Mm -hmm. like, there's something here. And that's where we took that and said, okay, there's a business here. Restaurateurs doing this sort of uh, restaurant quality places at peop- at experiences where people least expect it. So venues and stadiums, was that practice not done in boxes where it was nice, higher quality foods? Or is that kind of something that you all initiated? It really was us. Others tried to do it. Okay. This was, by the way, before skyboxes and premium seating at stadiums and arenas were a big thing. We happened to hit at the right time where there were so many new stadiums and arenas being built. And one of the ways they were being built is by selling this little strip of real estate called Skyboxes. They were getting huge income, which would help them build the stadium. And in order to sell them, they had to sell the people, hey, if I want you to spend this much money for our box, I promise you restaurant-quality food. So in some cases, again, the hot dog and beer guys from downstairs were trying to do it, but they weren't very good. We came in and we said, don't worry about the downstairs, guys. That's not us. Over time, it became us. But at the time, we said, we're just, we're the specialists. And it really resonated at the right time. And I think we are credited with bringing really restaurant-quality food to stadiums and arenas. What was the stadium you got that you were super proud of, like fist-pump moment, like, oh, we got Lambeau Field? Yeah, you know, there are so many uh, of those times. It's interesting because you always want the next one. And when you Mm -hmm. get it, you're like, oh, my God. I would say, you know, for us, when we got Wrigley Field, that was like, oh, my God, what a moment. After that, I remember, oh, my God, if we could only get Dodger Stadium. Then you get Dodger Stadium. Oh, Oh my goodness. This is insane. Well, we really want the United Center in our home. That would be off the charts and then you get that one so it's always sort of this Mm -hmm. brass ring you keep chasing Uh and you say oh i I promise i won't ask for any other one if i only get this one then you get it and you're ready for the next one which one do you want which one is still out there that you're that you're chasing Mm, there's a few i would say the top of my list uh, i don't know if it's a chase but i hope someday to be at university of michigan that would make me really happy we're at (laughs) we're at a lot of colleges including a lot of rivals of michigan so i want to be at michigan so that might be at the top of the list okay cool where are you in nashville uh, we're at the uh, at the hockey arena there at Bridgestone Arena. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I've def- I've had your food then. Oh, yeah. good. For sure. Okay. For sure. All right. I'm like, you have the new uh, Nissan Stadium. You should get into. And we're we're at we're at, uh, we're at the Titans mm-hmm. now, and we're working with them on the new stadium. So That's wonderful. Yeah. It's gonna be beautiful. It's gonna be spectacular. So now going forward, um, as CEO, you've been here 35 years. What is What's kind of the, I guess not final chapter, but like when you, when you're done being CEO of Levy, what do you want to have left behind? What kind of is your purpose right now going forward into the future as, as you know, you're on 35 years? It's really interesting um, how things evolve over time. And, and if you would ask me what I wanted to leave 10 years ago to be a different answer. First of all, I'm... Um, I can't believe that I'm potentially, I'll call it the back nine of my career. Mm-hmm. Some might say, no, you're on the back, whatever. I, yeah. I still is, I'm as energized as I've ever been. I feel like in many respects, I'm better now than I used to be because I think more seasoning and marinating and just experience helps you. And as people ask me all the time, like, how long do you want to do this? And I, 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 here's my answer. I say, did you ever hear a professional athlete when they retire, they're always asked the same question, why now? And no matter what the sport is, their answer is always the same. I just knew it was time. Yeah. And that could mean I lost two miles an hour on my fastball. It could mean I can't go through another training camp, whatever. And I feel that at some point, which is not now, I'll wake up and I'll say it's time. When I think back now on what I want people to remember, 
I think it's it's less about being this most amazing company that redefined and disrupted the industry so many times. I really, at its most basic thing, I believe in that sort of Boy Scout motto of leaving the campsite in a better place than I found it. I, I, I want to be able to say that, you know what, I, I left this place in a way better place than I found it. I want to be able to... I'm really now at a point in my career where I'm into internal history and storytelling. I feel like I have an obligation, uh, along with others who have been here for a long time, who are highly producing still, to sort of tell people about the history of Levy and the culture. And, you know, it, it kills me when current baseball players don't know who came before them. They don't know Jackie Robinson. They don't know so many different things and so we spend a lot of time through podcasts storytelling just turning the camera on talking about the history of the company so that folks who come in understand the shoulders that they're standing upon so that's important i really want to leave a um a mark in our work of change which is our dei efforts mm-hmm. that i think we Uh, are on a wonderful journey. You're never totally there, but I think we've done some remarkable things uh, with that and continue to do. And so it's really more the soft stuff. I want to just leave this company with the understanding that at the end of the day, it's about nice people who are really passionate about what they do. And if you give me those two traits in somebody, we're going to keep being successful. I love it. I love to hear that. We actually, we went into one of your restaurants and, you know, we wanted to we know that you value your employees and you say that those that are, you know, the ones touching people are the most important, not the ones sitting in the office. Yeah. So we went in and we asked them, you know, we said, we're sitting down with your CEO. <laughs> What's something that you'd want to ask them or just something you'd want to share? And there's this one guy, Mark, and I feel like this maybe could give insight or pair well with what you're kind of talking about. And he was saying that he, he would love that he'd love to meet more of the employees and get to know more. He's like, I think it'd be so fun to have a employee party where everyone can just meet each other and get to know each other. And I'm sure you're accomplishing that with, you know, the podcast and things like that. But it sounds like your employees are, you know, hungry to learn more and meet each other, which I think is a really cool culture. Well, I love that because that shows an engaged employee Mm -hmm. as opposed to an employee who says, you know, just please, I'm just showing up for work and let me get out of here. I love that. And you know, it's, it's an ongoing challenge for us. We, we, we've always been a family business where I know the first names of a lot of people, yeah. and, and it's important to me to know who they are and know me. That was a lot easier when you were smaller, and as you get bigger, I still think we're a family. We're just a really big family with 50,000-whatever people. But I think in addition to the podcast, one of the ways I try to um, – make people feel like they're part of a family is I spend the majority of my time in our locations around the country. Uh, Spending time with our people, breaking bread with our people, meeting with our partners. So, you know, last week I was in five different cities. I was on 10 airplanes at, at, you know, at, at five different of our stadiums and arenas, like sitting and talking to people one on one. So I think there's a large percentage of, of our management staff who would say, oh, God, yeah, I, I know Andy and the senior leaders. Like, they're, they were just in the other day. And that's hard to do as you get bigger, but it's really important to me. You guys, these hot dogs are so good. If you want one, go check out levyrestaurants.com. Odds are one of their 250 locations is near you. towards the end of our, our podcast is ask a little to-go box questions, little rapid fire. Keep it light, keep it fun. Yeah. Alex, start us off. What? When did you fall in love with magic and the art of deception? Oh, my <laughs> God. Now you're really going to see my passion come out. Let's hear it. Um, I have loved magic ever since I was a little, little boy and my grandfather pulled a coin out of my ear. <laughs> and I just was like, oh, my God. God, what just happened? And like all of us, I got a magic set as a gift, right? Every one of us had a magic. The difference is everybody else outgrew it, and I never did. I just have loved, loved, loved the art of magic since I was a little kid. And I think the reason why 
has changed over the years. Really? You know, I think early on when you're a young kid and you can do a magic trick and fool an adult, it's like, wow, like this is a little powerful. Like I just freaked that person out. I think now, um, to me, it's all about sort of the sense of wonder. Like we were all born with a sense of wonder when we're young, right? Mm -hmm. Why is the sky blue? How do birds fly? And as you get older, you figure it all out. And so the sense of wonder you don't really have as an adult. And what magic does is it reawakens that sense of wonder that we all had. Like, mm -hmm. how did that just happen? How did that happen? And I think that's an amazing gift you can give to somebody is to just rediscover what wonder felt like that they haven't felt. And magic is one of those rare things that everybody loves. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter anything. Nobody has ever said to me, no, nah, I don't want to see what you're about to do. They're like, yeah, <laughs> That's please, so true. please. And it's really very unique in that regard. So I adore it. And I also think it's important. I use it a bit as a, as a lesson at work on the sort of notion that anything's possible anything's possible like decide what you want to happen and then we'll figure out a way to make it happen and that magic thinking i think helps me it's just also my hobby and my passion <laughs> nice. and every waking hour that i'm not working i try to spend on magic well, also it seems like your story has a couple magical moments in it the revolving door yeah. you know randomly becoming a sports agent yeah. you know it's like I don't know. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Cool parallel yeah I there. think there is a little, uh, some of those moments that you don't know what's going on, but maybe there's some yep. magic happening. Yep. Yep. <laughs> if you could take two weeks off tomorrow and you knew that your company was going to be fine, there would be By the way, no... it would be. Right, right. <laughs> it exactly. absolutely would be. Nobody would miss There'd me. There'd be no issues. They wouldn't bother you. What would you do in that two weeks? Um, I would just, my first goal would be to spend it with my family. Mm -hmm. Anywhere. 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 It doesn't even have to be an exotic place. Mm -hmm. I... My uh, my life is my family, and if I can spend two weeks uninterrupted time with them, mm -hmm. doing something fun, just hanging, whatever, that would be nirvana for me. If you could choose one Disney character to be your successor, who would you choose? Wow. Um, well, given the fact that I was probably goofy, I, we should go to a more serious... Uh, um, I don't know, maybe... Gosh, maybe Aladdin, because Aladdin could, and the genie could figure out the magic. That's a good stuff. answer. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's, that's probably answer. where I would go. That's a really good answer. I like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. So family is very important to you, number one. If you were to leave Levy and start a company with your family, your wife, your kids, what type of company do you guys think you'd start? Hmm. Wow, uh, that is something I have never given not only a second of thought to, but a millisecond of thought to. Uh, so you, you absolutely stumped me on that one. What kind of company? Uh, well, we all love to eat, so maybe it would be some kind of a really crazy casual barbecue joint, hot mm. dog stand, something in the food <laughs> business. Um uh, my son is very into sports and works in the sports industry, so maybe it would be uh, he started a cool business a few years ago that actually was featured on Shark Tank, so maybe no I would do something right. with him. Uh, uh, my daughter is uh, works for Meta, so she does some really cool things that I think she could teach me a lot. Mm -hmm. Maybe I could still teach her a thing or two and we could do some things together. And uh, I think the four of us together could do great things. What that is, I don't know. <laughs> Um, okay, back to your sports agent days. Who would you rather has as your client, LeBron James or Joey Chestnut? <laughs> <laughs> well, I respect the hell out of both of them. Seriously, <laughs> think about it. Well, I as mean, let's should, really, yeah. obviously LeBron right. for all the right reasons. Think about what Joey Chestnut does. Legend. Beyond. Uh, I think I would say LeBron because one of the things I admire so much of LeBron about LeBron is that he is sort of brought together this intersection of culture and sports and entertainment in a way that I don't think any athlete ever has. And um, just the way he talks and some of the social issues and just bringing, like I love his show, The Shop. I yeah. think it's one of the most fascinating, just 
how they bring all these people together. So I think the possibilities with LeBron are limitless, whereas Joey Chestnut's a one-trick pony. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but an impressive pony. <laughs> Which do you think is harder, mastering a perfect card trick or cracking a perfect joke? Um... I think the card trick. I think to master a really, really difficult card trick the right way could take months or years. Mm-hmm. There's some that I've been working on for a long time, and I'm still not there. I, I, I can, I can give a good joke, tell a good joke <laughs> with the best of them, and I think sometimes I get the courtesy laugh. But I think, I think, I think it's easier to be a little funny than it is to master a technical okay. trick. Right. If you could have a conversation with any famous painting and ask it a question. Which painting would you choose and what question would you ask it? Well, I suppose the one that comes to mind uh, the quickest, just from sort of my art history days, is, okay, Mona Lisa, what the hell are you thinking? I just can't tell. Is that a smile? Mm -hmm. Is it a shit-eating grin? Is it, like, are you mad? Like, what is going on behind that? And, of course, that has been questioned and studied, but I remember that fascinating me when we studied that painting. Okay. So, you know, I read this article one time. You, first of all, you go through your day. It's insane. You wake up at what? 3:30? Is that still true? Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. You know, you talk about you're eating hot dogs by 8:30, <laughs> you're doing magic tricks on the side, and you also have a smoothie, a very interesting smoothie that's apparently wow. 12 ingredients. Yeah. Now, it I may don't be know, up to 13 now. 13. Yeah. There's I a lot. I don't know if any of those are, you know, public ingredients something you can share company secret but we'd like to play a little game with you okay we have a deck of cards here oh you a unique do hot dog oh my god i've never seen a hot dog deck of cards of cards look at that so alex is going to give us a good shuffle mm-hmm. and there's two of course jokers in here yeah they say hot dog actually they don't even say joker how cool is that so if you pull one you need to tell us your ingredients and in your smoothie joker. okay deal normal deck yeah. Two jokers. Yeah. We'll see so what whatever, happens. 256 or 54, whatever okay. it is. Ready? Yeah, let's see what you're made of. Let's of see what we got. Can't well. force it on a forcer. <laughs> Come on, baby. Our listeners are going to hate if you don't get it. Now, what card would you think a magician would pick? Ace of spades. Wow. <gasps> no. Dang it. That's crazy. Dang it. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, Give I... us one ingredient, then. <laughs> Uh-uh. Not 12 or 13. I'll give you all one. of them if you really want to know. It's not that big a secret. It's sort of just me, like, over time seeing, oh, that would be good. That would be good. And I just keep adding to a smoothie that started with, like, three ingredients right. and then came totally out of hand. So it's really just like a meal that I eat. It's right. just neon green relish, <laughs> cucumber salt. Actually, so it's the rare it's the time when smoothie. everything that goes in there is healthy. So yeah. I... So I uh, Oh my God! It's you know protein powder and a half a banana and blueberries yeah. and a little tart cherry juice <laughs> and chia seeds and nice. flax seeds and oats and just health, avocado and wow. kale. Yeah, everything. <laughs> nice. And some for some reason it comes together, and it actually tastes pretty good. That's good. It yeah. sustains you for the I like day. It. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, yeah. You drink that. You don't need anything for a while. Right. Okay. We've got about three or four minutes left. We have two more questions. For okay. You. First is, we're building a CEO bookshelf. So every every CEO we interview, we ask them for one book that we can put on our bookshelf for our listeners to, if they want inspiration, if they need advice, they can go to and read. Which book would you like us to add to our CEO bookshelf? Well, I would probably start by saying that I think most business books, this is probably a very rare opinion, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. I think most business books are awful. Interesting. I think mm. so many of them are written by quote-unquote consultants who really have never either been in the business or Mm -hmm. are in between careers or whatever. Uh, But every now and then I get a really good book that I love. Uh, I would say two books that I think that I remember over and over again is the first one is not a new one, but I think the Good to Great book really sort of defined the kind of company that I wanted to, to run, which is a great company, not a good company. And it really talked a lot about how you do that. And one that's only been out for a year or so that I just adore is Will Gadara's Unreasonable Hospitality. Incredible It's book. a great, great when, book. When you're talking about the challenges of the, you know, restaurant industry and he breaks down just what it looks like to price things and it was blown away. 
just a really well thought out book mm-hmm. by a guy who uh, lived it. And I, I can't recommend that book to enough people. So being a CEO, we're here having lunch with you. Who's the CEO that you would like to have lunch with that you haven't? Hmm. Um, it might be Bob Iger at Disney mm-hmm. if, I, if I had to think about it because of sort of the breadth of his experience, um, you know, whether it was ABC, Disney, and just I think Disney is such a com- has become such a complex company with all of the moving parts, right, from entertainment to mm-hmm. ESPN to the theme parks to stream. And I, I just um, I'm fascinated by all that goes into running a company like that. So I think that would be a really cool lunch. Nice. Well, Amazing. Andy Lansing, thank you so much for taking your time, taking your lunch break with us. This was awesome. This was really, really fun. So oh, really appreciate no, it. Oh, I enjoyed it, thank guys. You so much. Now we're we ready for a card trick when we turn the mics oh, off. Yes. Let's do it. Okay, let's, let's do, do it. it. Hot dog cards. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Andy. Thank you guys so much for taking your lunch break with us and coming along on this conversation with us. We hope you enjoyed it and got a lot of good value out of this episode. If you could, before you leave, please just go to your favorite podcast app of choice. Leave a review, like, subscribe. That'd really help us out. And thank you guys for being here. We'll see you all on the next CEO Lunch Break. Thank you.